So just to go over a little bit of what we did last week, we, be, we began talking about wisdom from Scripture for discipleship. And last week, talking about the who, the what, and the why of discipleship. The who, who is to disciple and be discipled. It's everybody. The role of making disciples is not just for elders, but is for all Christians. We saw in Romans 15.14 that Paul is uh, confident that you are able to instruct one another. The what of discipleship. What is the source of our discipleship? From 2 Peter 1.3, and really through all of 2 Peter 1, we see that the source of our discipleship is the Word of God. The wisdom that we find there. The why of discipleship. We disciple because we're commanded to in the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 19. Beginning with how we move to the how and why of discipleship, we begin with Proverbs 1, which I think would be helpful to look at again. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. To give prudence to the simple. Knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And just to remind us, you see right there in that opening part of Proverbs 1, we must receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice and equity before we can give prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion to the youth. And last week we were focusing on receiving that wisdom, receiving that knowledge. And so today, we want to focus on the giving. So, I want to begin considering some of the when aspects of discipleship. And to begin the when is, if we're talking about approaching a brother or sister to instruct or to admonish. There's a lot of Proverbs that we ought to wrestle with before that even begins. What I mean by that. Um, There are some Proverbs that we want to consider that might discourage us from even beginning a conversation. It might not be necessary. And a lot of them hopefully don't apply within the church. But... May, unfortunately. Um, For example, and we're going to be going through a lot of different Proverbs. I don't expect it will be easy to keep up, but I'll try to slow down when we can. Proverbs 29.9. If a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is not quiet. Point being, some conversations aren't worth having. Because if you're just going to talk to a wall, it might not be beneficial to begin that conversation. Proverbs 23.9, do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. 26.4, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. 22.10, drive out a scoffer, and strife will go out, and quarreling and abuse will cease. Proverbs 21.23, Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. And here, 
I want to focus on a different emphasis. This isn't this is in all contexts. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Not necessarily dealing with fools, but there's plenty of instances where we're dealing with a brother or sister, someone who's not a fool, and we don't need to share everything. We don't need to share everything that's going on between our ears. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. We don't need to involve ourselves in every controversy, every debate. We don't need to comment on every point of disagreement we might have with someone else. It's not necessary. Maybe not helpful. Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. So you got a pretty vivid picture here. You're walking down the street, there's a dog, the dog's pleasant, and you just grab it and twist its ear. What kind of reaction are you going to get? Not a very good one. And the idea is, is when you're involving yourself in other people's business, you can get a similar reaction. And so, right away, we see some wisdom offered that might cause us to evaluate whether we, this is especially when we're initiating a conversation with someone else for instruction or admonition. We might not have to do it, might not be prudent to do it, might not be helpful to do it. There's other proverbs in regards to the timing of an approach. Proverbs 27.14 says, Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. And you get the picture here. The idea like, I'm saying wonderful things about my neighbor, but at 6 a.m. and I'm saying them loudly through a megaphone. <laughs> like, it's not a blessing. And will be counted as cursing. And all I want to pull from this is that we want, we want to be wise in choosing the timing of when we might approach somebody. There's some times that it might be appropriate. There's other times where it might not be appropriate. And the example kind of silly here is early in the morning when he's trying to sleep in might not be the best time <laughs> to bang on his door and say, we need to talk. You said something yesterday. Or in the case here, even saying nice things. Um, 2920. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And there's an encouragement here to slow down a bit, not to be eager to jump in as soon as we might think there's a problem. There's wisdom for the frequency of engagement. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. And the ones that we like to rib each other on, 27, 15 through 16, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. And as much as we like to make light of this, what's the point of the proverb? The constant dripping of the faucet. We don't want to be like that when we're trying to correct somebody. And you don't have to be a nagging wife to do that. 
Anybody can do that. And so, there's a lot of wisdom here just from the beginning, just to consider how I might begin the engagement, how I might begin trying to instruct or admonish somebody. But what about when we've decided it's necessary, it's a good time, this needs to happen, I need to approach this person? What wisdom do we have from Scripture? And I would begin by saying I would highly recommend we had the ACBC training over the last several months. I would highly recommend looking at their materials for this. I think you're going to get a lot of specialized help. There's a lot of reading material associated with ACBC that would be very helpful. So I want to put that out right out the gate. And one of the things I found helpful with ACBC training is when we are, when we are wanting to do Romans 15, 14, instruct one another, admonish one another, ACBC had a way of framing this, and I think we talked about, mentioned this in Sunday school a few weeks ago, change by confrontation coupled with concern. That's really what we're aiming for, is if I'm wanting to instruct somebody or if I'm wanting to admonish somebody, what I'm looking for, what my goal is, is change by confrontation coupled with, with concern. And I know right away, confrontation feels like a word where I'm getting up in your face, my face is red, we're heated, voice is elevated, my finger is pointing at your chest. We got to get rid of that right away. <laughs> confrontation should not look like that in the norm. Confrontation is just... confronting, coming to you and being like, I've noticed something that you might want to consider. When you talk this way, have you considered what the scriptures might say about this thing? It, it doesn't have to be an angry thing and shouldn't be an angry thing. It should just be a willingness to speak. So, with that, when Especially, you're talking about two different things when we're talking about discipleship. You're talking about whether you're approaching somebody or somebody's approaching you, asking for wisdom. And in both cases, it's very important when you're trying to help somebody, and you're trying to help somebody either by approaching them or being approached by them, to get as much information as you can so that you know how you might address the problem effectively. And there are multiple Proverbs that speak to this. Proverbs 18.13, if one gives an answer before he, before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And 18.15, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. So right away, we're encouraged again. A lot of what these Proverbs are going to encourage us is to be deliberate, not be hasty and overly eager to approach somebody or to offer advice, even when approached. We want to be careful. We want to be wise. We want to be offering what might be most helpful 
12.18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And again, you have this encouragement. Don't be hasty. Hasty words often can be... I know we talk a lot in our culture about psychological damage, and some of that's helpful, some of that's not helpful. But the proverb says pretty plainly, rash words are like sword thrusts. Speaking in an unprepared way, speaking without knowledge to the situation, can be like you're cutting somebody. You're stabbing them. It's not helpful. Which is why it's so important that we want to gather as much information as we can that we might be able to apply the word accurately and helpfully. Proverbs 18, 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. How might this proverb apply when we're considering either approaching someone to instruct or admonish or when someone comes to us seeking wisdom? We could be wrong. Yes. 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 Absolutely. Any other applications of this verse? The first story you hear may be only a half story. Yes. Yes. And very often that's true. That we hear of a conflict between two people, we hear from one side first, and we're tempted to be like, man, you're right. That that guy's a jerk. <laughs> What an idiot. But then, when you hear the other side, it's not as clear. I think that along with that, if somebody does come to you complaining, even if it's not technically gossiping, mm-hmm. it's clear to that person that I'm not, we're not, I'm not complaining from one side of the story. I'm not yes. And along with that, our goal, when we're instructing one another, Romans 15, 14, when we're trying to bring the Word of God to people, we want change by confrontation coupled with concern. We're dealing with discipleship. We're making little Christs. We're making Christians. That's our goal. And so, we deal with this a lot in our counseling situations as elders, but when I'm talking to somebody, my primary goal is to help this person in front of me. Now, that may necessarily entangle talking about other people, but that's not our goal. That's not our focus. I, I can't, in this conversation, confront the person who's not here. There, there's no way to do that. And so, there's wisdom in, yeah, I understand what you're saying about this person, but how can, how can we be encouraged to respond in a godly way? How can, I be, how can I be encouraged to be more like Christ when I'm frustrated with this person that's not part of the conversation? And there's a lot of fruit and benefit to be gained in that way of conversation rather than us commiserating about how much a jerk the other guy is.
So, are there any questions or comments? I know we're moving very quickly, but... Yes. 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 Absolutely. And yeah, we'll get more to that further down, but there certainly are. And like if if we see a brother in open sin, we don't want to use the proverbs that we've already talked about to discourage us when it's very clear that we should confront. So we've talked about when I'm approaching someone or when someone's approached me for wisdom, I want to get as much information as I can so that I might rightly apply the word of God. There's a lot of Proverbs about being careful in your speech. And we've talked about some that point this way already, but I think it's helpful Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Again, an encouragement. Whatever's going on above your neck, behind your forehead, I think one song is going in my head, words it. You don't need to let it out. Everything in your brain is not helpful <laughs> to who you're talking to. And along with that, especially if someone's approaching me, we're not, it's not helpful to have venting sessions where the individual that has a problem comes to me, wants biblical wisdom, but what they really want is just to yell and scream about how dumb this person is and how wronged they have been. We don't want to encourage that. Do what? Mm-hmm. Well, practically, at least one way I might be inclined to handle it is be like, um, I hear what you're saying, but I think the Word of God might help us to deal with how I can respond, how you can respond to all of this in a more godly way, and then we might be able to look at some scriptures that talk about how you personally should be responding, not how bad the other person is. And that's really where we're going to get real helpful change. So, Fits of anger along the lines of this, just to help us fill this out. Fits of anger, venting, is a fruit of the flesh, a work of the flesh in Galatians 5. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Which again, if, we want, if we're doing change by confrontation coupled with concern for the purpose of making us more like Christ, we want to cultivate the fruits of the Spirit, of which one of them is self-control. Which is diametrically opposed to venting. When we're venting, we're exhibiting a lack of self-control. And again, just an encouragement for our general, perce- our general 
way of doing this, Hebrews 10.24 is so helpful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So, another encouragement to be careful in our speech. Proverbs 25, 7-10. What your eyes have seen, do not hastily bring into court, for what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Argue your case with your neighbor himself. Do not reveal another secret, lest he who hears you bring shame upon you, and your ill repute have no end. And this is really for all of our conversations, not just in the instruction and admonition. Be careful what you share in that conversation or out of that conversation with other people. I, it, Ecclesiastes 10 is interesting here. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry, carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. What you, get, I, what you get here is once the words leave your mouth, you can't grab them and put them back in. They're gone. And you don't know where they're going to go. Now in Ecclesiastes 10, the encouragement is don't speak ill of the king because you don't know where those words are going to go and they might find their way to the king. But in all of our conversations, we don't want to be gossiping. We don't want to be sharing what's not helpful. And it's very easy to do that. So we're encouraged to be careful in our speech. We're also encouraged to be gracious in our speech. There's lots of Proverbs that encourage the one who would give instruction and admonition to be gracious. Proverbs 25.15 With patience a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. And what you see the emphasis here, patience, soft language, I take the breaking of the bone meaning real stuff gets done. Like with a soft tongue, there can be effective things accomplished. And for an example of this, this came up in our ACBC training, and I think it's really a helpful example. John, or Jesus is speaking to his disciples, his apostles. And in John 16, 12, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And I think that's a very helpful way of speaking, especially an easy example, is when we're instructing in discipleship, and if we're instructing with people outside of this church, I, you don't need me to tell you, most, most evangelicals cannot bear with Calvinism. Most evangelicals cannot bear with covenant theology. And when it comes to admonition, most people have a low threshold for tolerance of being told they are in the wrong. And so we want to be deliberate. We want to be gracious. Not ignoring the conversation, not avoiding it, but being aware of this principle. There is a point where it is appropriate to say, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And trying to avoid crushing others in conversation. Does that make sense? Is that? Okay. Proverbs 
Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 15.4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. And that's very strong language. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. Bringing forth fruit in abundance. That's helpful. Life-giving. 16.24 is very similar. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. And when I think of what this might look like, I think of what Jesus says in Matthew 11.28.30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ came with a very gentle gospel and describes himself as gentle and lowly. And those words are offering life, health. And we want to be doing the same kind of thing in our admonition, in our instruction. All of our admonition is based on the gospel, right? The only change that can really happen is by that of the Holy Spirit. We're not asking you to grit your teeth harder, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, make changes. We're asking you to call out to the Holy Spirit for help, for strength. Yes. In my mind, um, even in the harshest words that we have, it's far more gentle than what we deserve for what Christ as the perfect, God and perfect man could have given. Yes. And a distinction that comes in my mind is that those harsh words were what for what the Proverbs would call fools. Yes. Yeah. Um, he's very gentle with the humble with those that are coming to him wanting help, for those seeking to understand the message, but for those who are like hostile, like the Pharisees and the scribes, Sadducees, he's not very gentle. So, and again, you could ask like, what's, what's the goal of that communication? I think... I think you could say pretty plainly that when Jesus is publicly engaging with the scribes and Pharisees, he's not looking to make friends and influence people among the scribes and Pharisees. That's not his goal. His goal is that what they are teaching be publicly shown to be false and empty. And so there's a different motive for the communication, which involves a different means of communication. That's how I'm thinking about it. In my own mind. There's Proverbs that encourage us to, to sympathize with those whom we might be engaging with. Proverbs 25.20 Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. And so like this might remind us of the previous one about uh, praising a man at six in the morning. The songs here are, I think, heavily implied to be like, you know, joyful ditties or like (laughs) something like clap your hands when the person's mourning. It's not helpful and not loving. 
a very helpful thing to have in our minds is Ecclesiastes 3. Because we, we often hear people talk about it. The assumption that in Christianity, you never have a bad day, you always got a smile on your face. Blah, blah, blah. Ecclesiastes 3, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. And what we ought to draw from this is that there is a time for all of these things legitimately, including mourning and weeping. It's not a sign of weakness to be an appropriate time of mourning and weeping. And it's not something that we as Christians should feel the need to get them out of that as quickly as possible. Because there is a time for appropriate mourning and weeping. And I think that's what our proverb in 2520 is speaking to. If you're trying to inappropriately bring them out of that appropriate season of weeping and mourning, you're not sympathizing with them. You're doing more harm than good. Romans 12.15 is very helpful. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Now, of course, we do not. there's time for all these things. Just as there's a time for weeping and mourning, there's also a time for laughing and dancing. We don't want to be perpetually in a downcast mood. That's not good either. So, we look to the Scriptures for help. We can say with David, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Speaking to ourselves. Preaching to ourselves. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. And we can encourage this in others. But just trying to grab the wisdom, there's appropriate seasons for weeping and mourning. And we should not feel the need to end that as quickly as possible. Okay? Any questions or comments? There's a lot of Proverbs, a lot, about honesty. And a lot of them deal with confronting, which again gets to what Caleb brought up earlier about how we are counseled to be deliberate and thoughtful, but not to be complacent. And so often we can use a desire to be deliberate and careful as an excuse to be complacent. And we do not want to do that. We've got Proverbs 28-23. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Which means there are hard conversations. There are hard conversations we have to have when it comes to admonishment. And we're seeking to be faithful to God in our engagement. And we hope that by God's grace, 
especially when we're admonishing a brother or sister, that it actually strengthens the relationship rather than destroys it. And by God's grace, it can. We see Proverbs 26.5, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. 27.5, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. And I think a pretty obvious implication of this verse is that hidden love might not be as loving as we think it is. Yeah. Where open rebuke may be more loving than hidden love. Because it's inspiring you to move for the benefit of the one you're claiming to love. Proverbs 24, 23 through 26. These are also sayings of the wise. Partiality in judging is not good. Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. Whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. And Proverbs are very vivid in some of their imagery. Talk about an honest answer being like a kiss on the lips, being something that is delightful and strengthening the relationship. An honest answer is to be that prized. And we can, we can talk about like we did last week. We want to avoid double standards, talking about partiality. We, we read Proverbs 7 last week about why do you try to get this when you have the beam in your own eye. But we also want to avoid this in regards to double standards involving others. We don't want to treat, we don't want to have different standards for anybody. We want to always be pointing to the Word of God. And especially among our brothers and sisters, we want to be treating our brothers and sisters the same. We also want to be careful about doing what we see in the Proverbs specifically, which is to say, you are in the right when the person is not in the right. And there may be many temptations that might cause us to do so, whether we want to avoid confrontation, which many, many, many of us want to do. Confrontation is usually not fun. And so we might be tempted to say you are in the right when you are not in the right. We might want to win the affections of the person, but neither is a good reason to distort the truth. And when you look at the end of the proverb, whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips... It's not a loving thing to do, to say you are in the right when you are not in the right. There are a lot of Proverbs, and I'm just going to rattle through these, listening for the raw destructive power of lying and falsehoods. 26.28, a lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. 16.28, a dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisper separates close friends. And we're back to talking about gossip. 14.25, a truthful witness saves lives, but one who breathes out lies is deceitful. And by contrast, seen as destroying life. 12.22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. 13.3, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. And so, again, just to be impressed upon us, the weight, the heaviness of speaking falsely. 
As much as we want to be gracious, as much as we want to be careful and deliberate, we cannot be untruthful. Then we come to 25, 11 through 13 for a more positive affirmation. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Like the cold, snow, cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters. And that's what we're seeking to do when we're seeking to do Romans fifteen fourteen. When we're seeking to instruct and admonish one another, our goal is that we would be like this verse. Along with that, Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And the encouragement here, and this was very helpful in our ACBC training, if I'm offering admonition to somebody, if I'm offering correction, I want, to be, I want to be quick to offer hope, too. Not just, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you need to correct it. Walk, walk correct. But we want to offer hope. And again, we're not encouraging people in our admonition and instruction to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. We're encouraging them to call out to Christ, call out to the Spirit, for sanctifying strength and grace. And if that's our focus, we're greatly encouraged by a passage like Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we may ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And you get here, and if we're taking this seriously, I think, we all would feel a feeling of inadequacy. I'm not wise enough to do this as well as I would like and as well as I would hope to. And if I'm trying to instruct somebody in theology that they don't believe in, I have no power to make them embrace something they don't believe. If I'm trying to admonish somebody to correct a sinful behavior, I have no power to make them see reason. Which is why, at bottom, we must understand this is all spiritual. This is all spiritual. And we see, wonderfully, from Proverbs 21, verses 1 through 2, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. And so when I'm seeking to be that blessing, when I'm seeking to be to offer that word fitly spoken, like apples of gold in a setting of silver, I have to recognize I can't change anybody's mind. I can't make anybody repent, which you know is the literal meaning of the Greek for the word repentance, is to change your mind. And oftentimes we hear that and we think, that's it, that's easy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not. To actually change your mind is not an intellectual thing. It's spiritual. When we're talking about rejecting a doctrine we used to believe and embracing a new doctrine, it's not because I've filled my head with facts and I'm able to neutrally evaluate the evidence and decide which one is more in line with Scripture. It's a spiritual thing. 
And again, when I'm confronted with sin and my wicked heart rebels and doesn't want to believe it and wants to fight back and defend myself, it requires God's grace that I change my mind and embrace and love that correction and move towards sanctification. And so when we understand that, in all of this, we want to be faithful with what we've been charged with, to disciple the nations. We want to be faithful in that, to make disciples, to encourage us to be more like Christ. But we do so striving to be, we strive in this faithfulness, understanding I am not the one bringing about the change. God is the one who's bringing about the change. Now, wonderfully, he might use me as a means to do so, But it reminds us I need to be praying a lot. You need to be praying a lot. And anytime you go to approach someone to instruct them or to admonish them, we need to be praying. We need to be praying that God would make it effective. Because ultimately, it's not about whether I have better arguments than you do and you've brought to some understanding that my way of seeing things is better than yours, but it's a spiritual matter of whether God opens the eyes and opens the ears and causes a heart, brings about a heart willing to change. Acts eleven eighteen. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Repentance is a gift of God. Second Timothy twenty five, two twenty five. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Again, this change of mind is a spiritual thing that is a gift of God. And so in all of our endeavors to instruct and admonish one another, we keep in mind Proverbs 21.31. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. So, are there any other comments or questions? This is kind of like a throwing out there of a bunch of different things from Proverbs but do you have any comments or questions? As you were sharing, I have some of the things you're talking about wrestling. Sometimes a lot of these are practical principles, even mm-hmm. outside the faith. We'll go into and start saying, hey, start doing this. And these are good money principles or relationship principles. But then that temptation, the self dependence, right? Yes. Yes. And every one of these things that I'm going to do, I'm relying on the Spirit. Like, yes. That wrestling, I guess, is part of working through. And in line with that, like, I would, I, I honestly, I think you would all, everyone, all Christians would benefit from reading ACBC's materials, seeking to instruct yourself in how to be a better admonisher, a better instructor. But it's not for the purpose of me getting so specialized and uh, smart or whatever (laughs) that I can just walk around and speak to people and bring about all this change. It's so that I can be faithful. That's really what I'm striving for. That's why like, I want to read more ACBC stuff, and I'm trying to even now. It's not so that I get smart enough that I can fix all your problems, so that I can be faithful. 
to what God has charged me to do. Call out to God that he might use me and work. It's about him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.